To The Point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings. Here we are, back again. It's Tim and Kel with To The Point, where today we're talking about 10 things that most professionals forget in a negotiation. Kel, what do they forget? Lovely to be back. Well, um, actually, um, back to our absolutely first episode in this series of podcasts, uh, we talked about preparation. And one thing, and the reason it's number one on our list today, is that most professionals forget to prepare properly. And it's actually not because they don't want to prepare most of them, um, but most of them don't really know in details what to prepare. So I can only recommend that if you haven't listened to our episode number one, you could jump back and take a look at that or uh, even better. uh, And on top of that, start studying what is required to prepare properly. So number one on my list is actually preparation. And what is it in uh, preparation that we need to focus on? Well, there's a lot of things as we just um, uh, talked about in our episode one, but at least you need to have your own team in place and you need to negotiate uh, what is negotiable. So you need to understand what is it in your own um, content that is negotiable. And as I mentioned in our episode one, you need a starting point, you need a threshold of pain, and you need a target. So if you're not ready for that, at least in your preparation, then I would recommend that you don't negotiate at all. Well, and of course, we touched last time on the other critical point of preparation, which is how you're going to deal with the unexpected. And that, Mm. I think, is such a powerful question. Well, the thing I'd like to talk about is the potential failure to set the best negotiation team. And what is best? And why wouldn't we want the best? Well, unfortunately, by nature, most of us are fairly competitive individuals. We may want to exclude people because we don't really want their voices. We want to be a hero. I want to come back with a signed (laughs) agreement. I don't want to share the glory. (laughs) All of these sorts of factors and characteristics can massively influence who we want to include, who we want to exclude. We may have people we feel talk too much, and that's a valid concern. We do need to think about the makeup of our team, but of course we also need to relate that, as we said in the previous episode, with the makeup of the counterparty's team. So what we have as perhaps our optimum mix may not be appropriate because of their mix. Maybe we can influence them to change their mix. Maybe we feel that we need to have that conversation. Remember, this is a bilateral activity. The best team is, in part, a matching team. It's the team that is going to help us to get to a positive, successful outcome. It actually just reminds me, Tim, I'm sure in in your career you tried it as well. You think you're going to negotiate with one or two individuals on the other side of the table and suddenly you're sitting in front of eight people and you're there all by yourself. You know, that's that's always always a very exciting moment when you realize that they are (laughs) so, so much more capacity on the other side of, of the table. So obviously part of the whole preparation process and the team is actually understanding who is coming from the counterpart. And you should probably tell the counterpart as well who uh, you got in your team. And that brings us on to number three. And number three here is actually to truly understand your counterpart. 
Um, as we just talk, uh, talked about very briefly in our first episode, there's a tendency, and I'm generalizing, obviously, that we are a little bit egocentric. We have a tendency to step in and focus on our own interests. Um, if any of you have been bored at any point in your life and studied old Chinese war philosophy, you would have learned that we should never, ever plan our strategy. We should never plan our tactics. We should never plan our purpose and target before we know the one of the enemy. And there's a lot of variable lessons in that because quite often I see when I'm involved in negotiation that my team, my client is completely focused on their own interest, their own purpose, value, cost, variables, whatever you have. And they completely forget what is it that the counterpart might want. I usually say, Tim, that we're not allowed to guess and we're not allowed to assume in negotiation. Uh, we could be right, but we could certainly be wrong. Um, so we need to know. So we actually need to understand the counterpart, what the interest might be, what it is they want to achieve, um, what is the direction, what is the background, where they're coming from. And as you pointed out, and I completely agree, Tim, who are they as individual? Um, what could there be? What What is they would celebrate as a true success? Because their success may not be the same as you. So we really have to sit down and focus on the counterpart. I had a funny experience. I have published books in China as well. And uh, um, when I've been into to China to launch a book, I'm often asking the audience out there why they have chosen to buy and read my book. And the answer I'm always getting in China, Tim, I don't get that answer anywhere else in the world as well. I bought and read your book because I want to know how the enemy is thinking. And it took me a, a bit to figure out what they mean by that. And what they mean by that is I'm actually not reading your book to predominantly learn what you've been saying. I read your book because I, I want to know what my counterpart might have read. Because when I know what my counterpart has been studying, what authors they have been reading, what professor they had at university, I may understand the way of thinking and thereby I can prepare my own negotiation approach. Well, that is a really good lead-in to the topic that I want to touch on next, which is understanding the culture of the counterpart. We need to be very alert to culture from a variety of perspectives. Of course, most of us, if we're undertaking an international negotiation, understand that we are dealing with people who may have different value systems, may have different perceptions around power, distance, authority. So understanding cultural norms is something most of us are quite rightly fascinated by, um, even though we perhaps don't study them enough in terms of understanding how it needs to alter our behavior. So that, of course, is the reason we understand those cultures and cultural variations, because it impacts on our behavior, their behavior, and the results we can achieve. But let's not just delude ourselves that culture is only something that matters in the context of international contracting or negotiation. It matters very much in cultural differences, for example, between industries, or even between companies within an industry. You know, is it a culture that is naturally collaborative, that is looking for win-win solutions, or is it a combative culture which believes in grinding the counterparty into the dirt to extract the lowest possible price or the highest possible price? Um, so those cultural standards are really important. But also go beyond that. Understand the culture and makeup of the team. Today, in our increasingly multicultural world, 
we can make some ridiculous assumptions, you know, just because we're negotiating with somebody who comes from the same town or the same state as us, does not, of course, mean that they have the same cultural origin. And indeed, the makeup and mix within our own team is something that's important to consider. Can we use that to our advantage or is it a potential disadvantage? How do we get alignment between perhaps different value systems and approaches of our colleagues? Do they match up to the cultural values and systems of the counterparty? Can we pair people effectively, taking advantage of difference of culture? So big topic, fascinating topic, and we ignore it at our peril. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. You're so right, Tim. Um, it is so often that we completely forget to think about what is the culture of the counterpart. Next item we're going to talk about is capitalizing variables. And what I mean by that is um, I think I can best illustrate it by sharing a very brief story. Uh, recently, I was sitting uh, with a client. It was a procurement officer. And uh, he told me that we're going out to our supplier. And we're going to ask them to reduce delivery time from six to four weeks. And I say, OK, well, fair enough. Uh, why do you want to do that? What is the financial benefit for you doing that? He said, I have no idea, but it would just be nice to get it to get it faster. And I said, well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because if you don't know your benefit first and foremost, and you have no idea, obviously, what the cost might be for, for the supplier, we are perhaps not creating the asymmetric value that I call negroeconomics, negotiation economics, because Assume for a second that the supplier's cost of reducing delivery time is way above your benefit, then it doesn't really make sense. We're just requesting the counterpart to increase their cost, and it doesn't even benefit us as much. But if your benefit of reducing delivery time is higher than the supplier's cost, well, then it does make sense because suddenly you're actually going to get a higher profit and you can compensate the supplier for their increased cost. So one thing that I really want to address, which is a truly problem around the world, Tim, is that a lot of organizations, believe it or not, have not capitalized their variables. They don't know what their warehouse costs, what insurance costs, what their, their warranty costs. They ha actually haven't capitalized their variables before they step into negotiation. So not only do we need to know our own cost and benefit on the variables we want to negotiate, we certainly also need to try and understand the counterparts. What about the creation of some structure and an agenda. We touched on an agenda in our last uh, podcast, and it is worth re-emphasizing the critical nature of creating an, a structured agenda. Um, but also remembering that maybe that will need to adapt and adjust. So don't approach an agenda with complete rigidity. Um, be sensitive to where things are going and perhaps the need to alter the timing or the sequence of particular conversations based upon what has already emerged. But certainly having that agenda established uh, to give meaning to the structure of the negotiation is an important component. I think uh, we touched on the point that a good agenda is a mutually agreed agenda. This should not be an imposition. And if you are dealing with a counterparty that is not really prepared to engage on agenda setting or insists on utilizing their own, well, that probably is a pretty big warning sign that this negotiation may not go all that well. Mm. So on one hand, avoid rigidity, but mm. on the other hand, 
make sure that you've got coherence, you've got a plan. Mm, absolutely. Next item we got on the list is questions, asking the right questions and certainly make sure you're getting the answers as well. And right questions, what is a right question? A right question is an open-ended questions that require an answer from the counterpart. So don't, don't say, would you like a faster delivery? That's not really something that is going to generate value in a negotiation. Your question should be, what is the value to you if we change delivery time? Um, now, what you'll find quite often in negotiations when you start asking questions like that is that the counterpart might hesitate or may not want to answer that question, so may even be bluffing to a certain degree. So not only do you have to uh, ask the right questions, you also have to make sure that the counterpart answer that. So if you don't get an answer to your question, you actually have to follow up and you have to follow up again. And at some point, and it, this can be unpleasant for some people, the counterpart will either share some information or they're going to tell you, I'm not going to share this information with you. But that's actually part of your exercise and responsibility as a negotiator to identify the value. Back to what I talked about earlier, creating the asymmetric value. So uh, preparing questions prior to negotiation is essential. And another part, which is more complicated, is actually listening to the subtle sickness from the counterpart. I normally use the phrase that you should replace the sound of the word from the counterpart with the sound of a cash register. And what I mean by that, Tim, is that when the counterpart raises a topic, it usually means their financial interest in a commercial uh, negotiation. So if the counterpart says, uh, we would love to change delivery time, again, you shouldn't say yes or no, we can do it, we don't want to do it. You should actually say, what's the benefits for you? What's the value? Uh, what would it mean if we did that? So on and so forth. So questions is both the prepared questions and the questions that appear spontaneously that you, you need to ask the counterpart based on what they're saying. Now, one of the things that I often find negotiators don't really have is a negotiation strategy. And this is a topic that we will have a dedicated session about because it is actually such a big one. But just to give an illustration, you know, when does negotiation begin? We often tend to think that negotiation begins when perhaps there's the first physical meeting. Oh, our negotiators are coming together next Wednesday. The negotiation is going to start. Well, actually... <laughs> The negotiation started way before that. The negotiation potentially started, you know, because of the marketing activities you'd undertaken. Certainly it would have started if you've got salespeople, representatives of some sort, uh, coordinating with the counterparty. They will have set expectations of various sorts, wittingly or unwittingly. So a negotiation is an absolute continuum. When does a negotiation end? Where, do our, where should our strategy finish? Does a negotiation end with the contract signature? Of course it doesn't. Arguably, that's when it really begins. <laughs> so really understanding the, the, the scope of what constitutes the negotiation, then thinking through fundamental questions like what are the tools and techniques we're going to use? Uh, Cal, one of our favorite topics is, you know, what about the face-to-face -face negotiation mm. live as opposed to uh, a, a video yep. negotiation as opposed to use of email for negotiation? So mm. all of these things start to feature in your strategic plan. What should you be doing? When should mm. you be doing it? Who should be doing it? These are all core components, and we, by and large, me included, 
fail to really think about negotiation holistically and understand its different phases and how we can, again, utilize those to our benefit and hopefully the benefit of the counterparty. Absolutely. And, and, and part of the strategy, as you talked about right now, Tim, is also simply just identify and prepare. Are we going to be collaborative? Uh, or are we going to be more zero-sum orientated? So um, that's that's a very basic things that an organization has to think about as well prior to stepping into any negotiation. The second to last item we have today is uh, all business is human. And this is actually an interesting comment in these days because the buzzword everywhere is uh, artificial intelligence and uh, chat GBT and uh, autonomous negotiations and technology can do negotiations instead of, of people. And then Tim and I are sitting here saying all business is human. Um, but it is. It is human beings who conduct negotiations. Uh, it is not organizations that have negotiations with organizations. It is It is Sally that is negotiating with Peter. And if those two individuals can't figure it out, well, then that negotiation might be very success- unsuccessful. But if Peter is replaced by Robert, it could suddenly turn out to be tremendously successful. So we have to recognize that negotiation, even that we use tools like artificial intelligence or whatever tools we might be using, it's still a human process. So we have to recognize that as it is human beings, we are emotional. So that means that a tremendous amount of emotions can can be part of that negotiation. Everything from the feeling of revenge to, to positive emotions, to happiness, to annoyance, to 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 uh, to frustration to be angry and i could just ask all of you listening to our podcast how many of you have ever been sitting in in a negotiation or just received an email where you get annoyed or frustrated or angry or happy or whatever i think all of you have experienced that and that just proves the fact that we are emotional i would like to recommend the work of professor daniel kahneman who is actually named the father of behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is basically um, the merger or or the marriage between traditional economics and um, psychology. He won the Nobel Prize in economics because of his works. And what Professor Kahneman is saying is that all human beings in the face of the globe are completely irrational. We base our decisions on emotions on the way back to the people we need to report to. We find the fact that proves that our emotional decision was absolutely right. So let's assume that Dr. Kahneman is right. Well, that means that we are way more emotional than we originally think we might be. So we are not as as irrational or rational, sorry, that we would like to be. Well, we're going to have to raise one in a year or two, I think. Um, increasingly, we probably do find ourselves negotiating with um, not Robert, but robot. And uh, <laughs> it, it is, I think, you know, a fascinating question that, that with simpler negotiations, organizations increasingly will introduce artificial intelligence, machines as the counterparty. And of course, with the voices they now have and the ability to even sense based on your voice what the ideal respondent voice is going to be to create mm. that emotional attachment. My goodness, yeah. isn't the negotiation changing? Brings us to our final point quite neatly, which is the topic of trust and to what extent trust plays a role in negotiation. 
Um, we do, again, often forget the importance of trust and building trust and the influence that has on counterparty decisions. We need, therefore, to be thoughtful, not trying to manipulate trust. That will not work in the longer term. But certainly in creating an environment where trust can flourish. That again, very often ties back to questions like the agenda setting, the nature of what we are talking about. If all we're talking about are the ingredients for failure, um, well, does that really create an environment of tremendous trust and confidence? Perhaps not. If, on the other hand, we're focusing a lot of the time on how are we going to share information and data? Um, how will we work together? What opportunities might there be for joint working? We start to send a very different message about our integrity, our seriousness around winning this business or awarding this business, and you know our dedication to successful results, not actually provisioning for when it all goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is really essential. Technology and no technology. And we could also talk about trust in technology. Um, so, so it is a really important topic. Well, we have to wrap up. If I should just quickly summarize the 10 things most professionals forget in a negotiation. Uh, we talked about preparation. We talked about setting up the best team. We talked about understanding the counterpart, truly understand the counterpart. Um, we mentioned the culture, and culture is not only traveling from one country to another, but perhaps crossing the street, going into another organization. Identifying and capitalizing variables, understanding the cost and the benefit, create a structure, work with an agenda, prepare the right questions and get the answer from the counterpart, establish a negotiation strategy, um, focusing and understanding that all business is human, the emotional side of negotiation, and certainly trust as the final, as the final point. Any uh, conclusion from you, Tim? Well, I just wish I'd been prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. To the point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings.